Today we begin a three-part history of American cemeteries. While there are hundreds of thousands of cemeteries throughout the United States, there are certain landmarks that everyone needs to understand to really know about cemeteries. Today, we start with the founding of the country, how Europeans exerted their own practices on the new land, and then how, as a budding nation, the United States began to set itself apart from the rest of the world by creating a new type of cemetery. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So as I said in the introduction, I think it's really important to understand how America is different. And we are. Even if you talk to folks from other countries, which I think most of us in the cemetery community have been on a tour or have interacted with tourists and cemeteries, and they will often remark on things that are different about American cemeteries. I'm going to talk about all of these over the next three episodes. And while I'm not going to give you a definitive history of every type of burial in the United States, I mean, I'm not going to try to cram that into three episodes. It's something that will be an ongoing topic throughout this podcast. What I do want to establish is that there are certain landmark events, three really big ones that have shaped American cemeteries. And if you are going to look at them from any kind of academic point of view, or if you're going to understand just the basics of American cemeteries, you really need to understand the three cemeteries that are basically going to be the core idea for the next three weeks. So while I'm calling it a history of American cemeteries, it also is the history of certain events. So this week is the foundation and the incorporation of cemeteries, as typified by a particular place, and that is the Grove Street Burial Ground in New Haven, Connecticut, which I will get into. But I want to start by giving a little bit of a general primer. Now, it's worth saying there are hundreds of tribes of Native North Americans that existed on this continent long prior to the European settlement. And European settlement is not something that happens all at once. The Europeans visit time after time after time, and they don't actually stay. Many times they don't know where they are, relatively speaking. Other times they are there on scouting expeditions. I'm going to go with the model that we usually talk about in American history books, which I know is not completely accurate, but I think it's also helpful to put things in a context that people can understand based on your own experience of the United States. In addition to that, I will also say this is going to be a very heavily Northern-centric story, just because so many of the Northern cities and towns do predate Southern cities and towns, with the exception of Jamestown, by almost a century. Even some of the really old, what we tend to think of as colonial places in the South, places like Charleston, South Carolina, places like Savannah, Georgia, far post-date places like Boston and Plymouth and things like that. So I'm going to focus on that because also, if you know anything about cemeteries, the scholarship that exists about New England burial grounds It is by far the largest 
grouping of research that has been done. I would argue that you could say that there's maybe too much research into New England cemeteries. But they are also the ones that we see again and again in television, in movies. If you ask a child to draw a stereotypical cemetery, they all come from that New England image. They have been studied as folk art, as symbolism, as a reflection of Puritan culture. So we really can't start anywhere else with the story of American cemeteries. So I will give that caveat, that warning. I can also say in a pretty wide blanket statement that you really can't talk about American cemeteries without acknowledging the fact that all of our burial traditions are at least loosely based on Judeo-Christian traditions. Now, while the overwhelming majority of the original settlers from Europe that come are Christians, there's a lot of overlap between Christianity and Judaism in terms of their burial practices. And while traditions do diverge based on religious belief, country of origin, and geographic area, there are definitely commonalities that we can see in terms of the materials that they're using for markers, in terms of the way that they're setting up their cemeteries to a certain degree. I will be not necessarily discussing some of the earliest settlements, like if you think about places like St. Augustine in Florida and things like that, I'm not going to be focusing on Jamestown today. I am going to be focusing on the New England cemeteries because they are the most direct influence that flows into Grove Street. And Grove Street really is the starting point for the history of American cemeteries, not just cemeteries in America, but American cemeteries as an institution. Now, as I said, there was a lot of scouting of the coast of New England in particular prior to permanent settlement. So John Smith, you may have heard of him. He actually does quite a bit of exploring outside of his history with Jamestown and to be even more based, Pocahontas, as most people remember. He does quite a bit of scouting up and down the coast, and he spent a great deal of time along the coast of New England. He went actually into certain parts of it, sailed up and down the coast, and in 1616, he publishes his book, A Description of New England. And this is really when things start to get cooking. So Jamestown is founded in 1609, by the 1620s, 1620, 1621, we have the first settlement at Plymouth. I'm sure all of you remember your elementary school education about that. We could really talk about the pilgrims in a whole episode all their own. But they are the impetus. And shortly after that, you have the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and you have what is known as the Great Puritan Migration. The Puritans, heavily persecuted in Great Britain, had tried to hack it in places like the Netherlands, but they found that the cultural difference is that their children were growing up Dutch as opposed to English, and so they wanted to be in a place where they could practice their own cultural traditions, but also not be oppressed for their religious traditions. So between 1630 and 1642, we have what's known as the Great Puritan Migration, And during this time period, you have roughly 21,000 Puritans 
who make the journey to the new world. And certainly, again, everybody remembers this. This was not an easy thing to do. Now, from the early settlements, and by early I mean the not permanent settlements, those scouting trips where they went to scavenge food, where they went to trade, the coastline of New England, while not completely depopulated, was already heavily depopulated. This land, which had once been Algonquin land, was heavily depopulated even by the time that the pilgrims landed Plymouth. And this is mainly because those European diseases were already making huge inroads. So you have a mass depopulation of many of the seaside towns. Then they are obviously pushed further back by settlers who are fighting and trying to gain the land. But they very quickly take over the coastal areas and then they start to push further west. So much though, but that by the 1660s, there are about 70 towns that have been established in both Massachusetts and Connecticut. Again, if you remember this, and I don't know if you were like me, but I seem to recall doing this early part of American history, what I would say the, um, you know, founding up until maybe the Civil War, I must have done this 10 times. Uh, never got to World War I in any class I ever took, but boy, did we cover the Puritans every single time. So hopefully I'll, you remember this. It's bringing back some possibly bad memories about tests. What you have to understand is that the groups that settled in New England, they bring a couple of things. They bring their languages. They also bring their settlement patterns. So while they are settling in coastal areas because those are the easily accessible ones, those are the ones with shipping routes, and those are the ones that are depopulated first, they get very hungry for land very quick. There are also schisms that occur within the Puritan churches. You may recall Anne Hutchinson and her crowd leaving and going to Connecticut. There, were a lot, there was a lot of unrest that caused the establishment of Connecticut. There's also a lot of break between Plymouth, Massachusetts Bay, um, the area that will eventually become Salem. These are all different companies that had permission to form colonies in the New World. And so while we think a lot about the later 13 colonies from the time of the Revolutionary War, prior to that, there were several charter companies that were all forming their own settlements. Now, these 70 or so towns that are established are spreading out because they need land. They are hungry particularly for land. Uh, New England, because of its glacial history, is a pretty rocky and thankless place to farm. So they needed more land to make it productive. The landscape also is very heavily reflective of this. So for the most part, these folks came from what are known as the weak manor regions of Great Britain. And so as a result, they are used to open field farming to a certain degree. They are used to having more land to cultivate. And as a result, their villages are also developed this way. So those from the weak manor regions have strips of common land. And there is set aside in every town a meeting house lot. And this is common land. It's often bare from use. It's not the town common that we picture today, which is this open green space with a gazebo and benches and basically an open field. No, this was practical use land 
around a meeting house that was not a church. It was usually a small, simple building. And it's very interesting because this is also the settlement pattern that is used for their cemeteries. Now, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, so bear with me. But this modeling has been refuted, actually. And I was reading some interesting theories about it that we have this picture of what the New England village looks like. And it's referred to by this particular author as the White Village. And so I'm going to read to you a little bit from this, which I thought was interesting because um, this gentleman, his name is Joseph Conforti, says, quote, that the White Village emerged as an economic node in and a prosperous symbol of the new order. The old scraggly central village became the economic access that linked farmers to the extra local exchange. Merchants, bankers, lawyers, doctors, millwrights, and tradesmen, people like coopers, blacksmiths, carpenters, and wheelwrights, for example, began to build homes, offices, mills, and shops in central villages to provide services to farmers who were going to become increasingly engaged in a market economy. In many towns, central villages acquired these new commercial hubs. They also took on a new appearance, a compact arrangement of houses and businesses owned by professionals and artisans. As part of this transformation, white church-like buildings increasingly replaced the old steepleless meeting houses that in the 18th century were painted a variety of colors from red to yellow. New England's esteemed icon was born as part of the village's new assemblage. The prosperity of the white central villages called attention to the unsightingly meeting house lots. The main road in front of the meeting house was also often scandalously bad, matted with ruts and gutters and deep gullies that ran its course. And so it's interesting here because Mr. Conforti goes on and he has written a great deal about New England and the creation of the New England identity, which I think is quite interesting. He goes on to say that the idea of the t common space has been really co-opted by things like the Freedom Trail in Boston and the Boston Common, and people get this idea that there was this beautiful space. And I have to say, as somebody who grew up in New England, I think that there's a little bit of truth to both arguments. Do I think that these greens were these pristine, beautiful places? No, I think they were, as it should suggest, common land. The way the settlement happened, and particularly in frontier villages, there were still frequent attacks. There were still frequent battles with the native tribes who were still living in the area and trying to fight for their land. But also, there is a communal atmosphere. And you need communal space for, if there is an attack on the village, say, a place to graze livestock. If you need to drill your militia. And for other common purposes like, oh, I don't know, burying the dead. And so it's very interesting, the idea that this is all contrived and that, I agree, I think the meeting house was probably not a very pretty place. But also, you have to keep in mind that these people were barely eking out in existence. The economic prosperity that would come later in the 18th and 19th centuries was still more than a century away. And so the appearance of that meeting house lot was far less important than the functional capabilities of it. And so I do still think it was the center of the village. And it makes sense that on this common land is where they would place the cemetery. Now, obviously, you probably also remember from history that both disease, starvation, exposure, lots of factors really shape the extremely high mortality rate 
that occurs in the beginning of these colonial settlements. Now, I can say that I actually sat down and I looked at this um, because I was curious to see if I was completely off base and I had bought into this whole white village nonsense. And so I looked at the 10 oldest towns in Massachusetts because Massachusetts does predate Connecticut. So they are as follows. Plymouth, founded 1620. Gloucester, founded 1623. Salem, founded 1626. Lynn, founded 1629. Boston, founded 1630. Medford, founded 1630. That was a big year. Watertown, founded 1630. Ipswich, also founded 1630. Hingham, founded in 1633. And Concord, founded in 1635. And so when I looked at these, what I did was I actually went on Google Earth and I tried to find visually where their oldest cemetery was. And guess what? With the exception of Gloucester and Ipswich, all of them were on the town green. And Gloucester and Ipswich, so Ipswich is interesting because the town center moved three times, moving like further away from the water. I think there was a number of reasons. Um, on the second town green, so not the initial one that was found, the second town green, this is actually where they established the cemetery. Gloucester, similar situation where they had a shift in basically they had two settlements and they found when they moved to the better settlement, the burial ground is also next to the town green. Now, granted, this only covers the period from 1620 to 1635. This is only the first 10 of the eventual 70 settlements that will be settled in New England by 1660. But I think it's pretty good to say that in the first 15 years of the colony, these first 10 towns all have centrally located burial grounds on the town common. And so I feel pretty confident in saying that even if the white village is a manifestation, even if it's a little bit of BS. And I can also say that I have, um, there's a pretty well-known book called The Meeting Houses and Churches of Early New England by uh, Edmund Sinop. If you are a architectural historian, you probably have a copy of this. It's got a blue cover. As I was flipping through them, it's not a coincidence. As I look at these churches, and now granted, many of these churches are from the 17 and 1800s, they may have replaced an earlier meeting house. Almost universally, there is a burial ground next to them. So without getting too much into the semantics of settlement patterns, I think it is fair to say that the Puritans located their cemeteries, though they were not called cemeteries, they were known as burial grounds, in the center of town, on the town common, adjacent to the meeting house. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Other than the fact that it's common land, as we already discussed, having it on common land meant that whenever you went to meeting, which if you were a devout Puritan, you were going multiple times per week. If you were going about your business, if you were moving through town for any reason, you had to pass the graveyard. Now, you might ask why. Well, without getting too deep into what the Puritans believed, because that is a whole discussion in and of itself. I'm going to give you the cliff note version. So the Puritans and their belief system are probably closest to what we would today call Calvinism. 
um, practiced by places like the modern Presbyterian Church. And one of the big things they believed in was predestination. So the belief that before you are even born, God has already decided if you will be saved or damned. Now, you might ask if everything is predetermined, well, what's what's the point? What's the point of trying to live a good life if nothing that you do can change it? I'm glad you asked. So the way it was explained to me, and <laughs> believe it or not, I had good friends who set me up on a blind date with a man who was studying for the Presbyterian ministry. Poor man, did he get an earful that day. But I was writing my thesis at the time, and I actually asked him about this. I said, well, can you explain this to me? You know, if everything is predestined, what is the point of having that centrally placed cemetery that people have to walk by every day? The common, what we today call memento mori, reminder that you will die. And his answer to me was actually surprisingly concise. For a man that had to study ancient Greek and Latin and Aramaic to be able to read every version of the Bible. That that reminder is a source of constant anxiety. Because you do not know what you are predestined to be. You do not know if you are predestined to be saved, if you are one of the elect, or if you are predestined to eternal damnation. And so that is an incentive to keep the covenant. Because if you are one of the elect, you still have to obey God's laws. And while personally for me in the modern day, that's a hard concept to understand, it at least makes sense that these were a memento mori, that the symbolism of the Puritans, which I'm not going to go into in this episode, it's way too complex. There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of articles written about it. Some very comprehensive books have been written about it. It's something that deserves easily its own episode, perhaps multiple episodes. I confess it's not something I find particularly interesting, um, just because it's been so overstudied. I think there are far more things that need additional study in gravestone studies, but you can't, again, you can't talk about cemeteries without talking about the cemeteries of New England because people are fascinated by them. And so my understanding is, is that that central placement helped be a constant reminder. Interestingly enough, in the 1660s and 1670s, at, sort of at the end of this first great migration, you also have a lot of writings occurring. And these are sermons that are written to chastise the laity for a lack of piety. And they're known as the Jeremiah. And basically the idea was is that, you know, they really struggled when they first got to the settlement. We talk about it every year on Thanksgiving about how the pilgrims were starving and through their work with the Indians, they were able to feed themselves and a lot of other feel-good nonsense. But the idea was that now that they were established, that people were getting lax in their piety. And so to give this added level of push, you get a lot of these fire and brimstone type sermons. And so you start to see cultural changes even in cemeteries around that time. It's interesting, I was reading a couple of quotes, and the best that I found was, quote, God it was that gave them the wisdom and the courage and the strength, or the heart, to subdue a waste wilderness, 
and to fill it with towns and villages. A direct quote from one of these sermons. The idea that God had given them this land and to not be good stewards of it and to not honor God would show a great disrespect. Because not only had he given them the opportunity to go to the land, but the strength and the courage to shape it, and now they were being ungrateful wretches for naught. So, for the first 100, 150 years, this is very much the tradition. Now, this is when you see the development of the very complex Puritan system of mourning, we tend to think of the Victorians as being the peak of mourning culture, but the Puritans actually had a quite a complex mourning culture. You have the artistry, particularly of slate headstones, which are carved with detail, with intricacy, with great symbolism. And the stereotypical burial ground. Now, these burial grounds, as that description that I read you, talking about the meeting house lot being muddy and miserable, they are not picturesque, not at all. They may have had a wooden fence, perhaps an unmortared stone wall, many of which you can still see today, but they were very bare bones. They were not designed. They did not have trees. They were open, raw places, the only decoration being the headstones themselves, and even that technology takes some time to get going. Originally, they're marked with just simple field stones or a wooden cross, something that goes away very quickly. Yeah, probably not a wooden cross, actually. That might be a little bit too demonstrative for the Puritans. But these markers are very simple. There is no embellishment. There is none of the beauty that we come to think of in the 19th century associated with cemeteries. They are also not well organized. They are utilitarian spaces. So if old Mrs. Smith down the road died last week and your husband, Mr. Jones, dies this week... He's buried next to Mrs. Smith, and then when old lady Blackburn dies next week, she's going to be buried next to your husband. And if you don't die for another 25 years, you don't get to be buried next to your husband. You'll be buried next to whoever died before you. It's very lined up in a straight way, and that's the reason that if you go to these cemeteries, they don't look like later Victorian or even 20th century cemeteries because they are practical places. They also were a service of the town and the church. And they were very much modeled on the European practice of churchyard burial. So you're getting something that is considered to be a common dignifier. It is a necessity, but no frills. And if you want frills, you're going to pay for it. And these headstones are perfect examples of this. And so that is very much the way it continues up until and directly after the Revolutionary War. So as America establishes its independence, we see things pretty localized. You do see some trade, particularly of headstones, in coastal cities where you will see headstones being shipped from places like Boston down to Savannah, down to Charleston, even Mobile. There are local trades between Boston and the surrounding towns, but you also have local craftspeople in your area. And again, this is something that people spend a lot of time and effort tracing. People who know all of the maker's marks, all of the details that mark a certain carver. But it's relatively homogeneous for quite some time. Then, as America starts to establish itself as a nation, things start to change. Now, 
as you maybe remember from American history class, there was a prohibition on a lot of things. And this is one of the reasons that the American Revolution happened. So you remember all of the Stamp Act and all of those taxes that were being levied on British goods. The whole idea was that Britain needed to keep itself tethered to its colonies. So that's not to say that there weren't businesses in the United States. Certainly there were blacksmiths and coopers and printers and all of these things. But you had to pay for the privilege of doing that business. And you had to pay both taxes and you had to pay levies. And certain goods that were imported were taxed as an import. These businesses also did not have the type of licensing. They did not have the type of rights that established British companies did. And this was a huge point of contention. So one of the things that we start to see after America's established as a nation, after the Constitution is ratified, is we start to see incorporation. And incorporation happens in waves. So it starts in the 1780s, right after the Constitution is ratified, with the incorporation of cities and towns. And this is important because it allows them to do things like levy taxes, sell stamps, run a post office, all of the things that you need to do to establish yourself as a city or town. Then we start to see incorporations of different pieces of infrastructure. So in the 1790s, you start to see things like roads and bridges, which levy tolls. You start to see banks and insurance. All of these are being incorporated, and by which that means that they are incorporated as an official business, and they are recognized by whatever authority it is. And generally, at that point, it is the state government. And this is when things start to get interesting. Because by 1796, we have a different type of business being incorporated. And it is one that has never been incorporated before in the United States. And that is a cemetery. So, let's take a step back and talk a little bit about the city of New Haven, Connecticut. Now, most likely you have heard about New Haven because of its biggest employer and most famous occupant, Yale University. So New Haven, Connecticut is founded right around 1701. It is incorporated as a city in 1784, right around the time that that starts to become a thing. And New Haven is pretty significant because it is one of the first planned cities in the United States. And it's interesting because we tend to talk a lot about places like Savannah and the Savannah model. But New Haven far predates that. And it has a similar setup to what Savannah will eventually do in the fact that it sets up a grid. So it is a grid of eight streets in a four by four grid. And what this does is it forms a nine square plan with that central piece being the common land or the town green. And this common piece of land in New Haven measures about 16 acres. It's a big piece of land. If you go to New Haven today, it still exists. We do know that there are a couple of eras of this. So in 1639, the first meeting house is established. The second one is built after it is destroyed in 1670 and lasts until 1757, at which point the third meeting house. And there are actually multiple churches on the green now today. 
the cemetery is established around the same time. So even though New Haven as a place predates that by more than 30 years, it is a smaller settlement, far less organized, and not fully planned. Now, the town green, if you go there today, as I said, there are multiple churches there. It's a big open park space. There, are, I believe, are fountains. I've been there once. It's, it's very pretty. And there was an octagon of land around the meeting house that was about 70,000 square feet and has four to 5,000 burials there. It's estimated by, by the time it was closed, it was handling about 80 per year. And this was very much on the New England model. Now, it is also worth noting that um, Connecticut itself, and I, I'm going to have to backtrack here a little bit just to explain this. As I already mentioned earlier in the episode, Connecticut was a breakaway. So in the 1630s, 1637, 1638, 500 Puritans had left Massachusetts. Led by John Davenport and Theophilus Eaton, um, they formed their own colony, which would eventually be broken up into 12 towns. New Haven is one of them. So while we think about Connecticut as a state, there were actually multiple iterations. And New Haven, for a very long time, actually shared um, co-capital rights with um, Hartford. I think that's worth mentioning because people don't tend to, they, they tend to think about Connecticut as a cohesive place. And it's worth noting that New Haven was pretty big on its own. And that's why I mentioned it. So even though they weren't the earliest town that was founded, um, Technically, like I said, technically as a town, it becomes a, a firm town in 1701, but it is established far before then. So 1637, 38, they leave and the town is established and then it later becomes a city in 1701 and then it's officially incorporated in 1784. So they are bringing those Puritan traditions to this new place, but they are doing it in a slightly more organized way. Now, this is interesting because all of the bad things that I already told you about town commons are definitely true in New Haven. So we have a description by um, Timothy Dwight, who, very active in Yale, um, pretty significant writer from the, the area, um, significant in his own right. You will hear about him a lot in the formation of early Connecticut. He said, quote, rendered too familiar to the eye to have any beneficial effect on the heart. From its proper, vulnerable character, it is degraded into a mere common object and speedily loses all its connection with the invisible world in a crass and vulgar union with the ordinary business of life. And so this passage from Travels in New England and New York basically says that, you know, this is a sacred burial ground, but it doesn't look like it that you cannot tell because it's this crass utilitarian space. And these complaints only increased over time. So after the city is incorporated, also starts to grow. One of its most famous um, residents, Eli Whitney, probably remember him from American history. He actually establishes a factory there. He is making firearms before the cotton gin. And so it's growing. It's an early center of industrialization before the true industrial revolution. 
And with this growth also comes a lot of death, particularly, and you probably guessed it, you have a couple of epidemics. And in this case, you have epidemics that really up the number of deaths in a super significant way. So for example, I already mentioned that the burial ground was getting about 80 burials per year. Well, in the year 1794, they had 116 deaths in just four months. So when you start to see that, and it's it's really hard to picture when we're talking about cemeteries today, but in the recent, you know, past, we still see that, you know, deaths, even ones that occur pretty frequently, they require planning. They require space. So it's a huge challenge to try to up your numbers that way when you at this point are quadrupling your numbers. Now, in this case, the the culprit, as you can probably imagine, was actually yellow fever. Again, any coastal city that you look at, whether it's in the south or in the north, at some point had a yellow fever epidemic. These things continue basically up until they discovered that mosquitoes are the cause of yellow fever. So Philadelphia has them. Um, almost every southern city has multiple examples of yellow fever epidemics. And so the yellow fever epidemic that starts in 1794 devastates the town green to the point where they really feel that they have to close it because it is becoming a threat to public health and safety. At this point in steps James Hill House. So in the world of early Connecticut men, James Hill House is pretty extraordinary for a number of reasons. So he is both a congressman and a senator from the state of Connecticut. He serves as president pro tempore of the Senate at a certain point. And he also serves as the treasurer of Yale University for something like 40 years. He is also a fervent abolitionist, which is interesting because I actually read an article from the New York Times talking about how many signers of the Constitution and how many early American politicians were slave owners. And they list him as a slave owner. And I must have looked up 50 other sources and I could not find a single other one that said he had been a slave owner. In fact, you can read, literally, Yale has tons of information about how he fought for abolition. And he believed that slavery was the great divider that would destroy the nation. So Hill House, very interesting guy. He was born in 1754. He will die in 1832. And he has this great anxiety that coincides with this massive death where he starts to worry about his family and what will happen to them after death. And he saw that there was a big trend in New England that many people had family cemeteries on their land, but he is concerned because he's like, well, geez, I don't know, like, how do I know? What if all my children die? Who's going to take care of their graves then? After a couple of generations, maybe the land will get sold off. So he started to see the need for a different kind of cemetery. And so he recruits all of these other wealthy and influential men in New Haven, 32 of them in all. And what they do is they create the first incorporated cemetery in the United States. And that will be the Grove Street Burial Ground. Now, to be fair, it was not originally called that. That is what it's commonly been known since like the 1870s. Originally, it was known as the New Burial Ground. And so the way that he saw it was that there were three major needs. The first is that it would have to be secure. The second is that it had to be situated away from the city. 
And the third, that it was attractive, that there was an incentive to keep it in good working order. And so what they did was they went out and they purchased six acres of land, which was a lot. Believe me, that's actually pretty revolutionary at the time. Most burial grounds were small and cramped. So they buy the six acres of land and they get ready to move forward with this establishment of a new type burial place. So they plan it and they lay it out the same way that the town had been. And it's worth noting that Hill House is also big into the beautification of the city. He's planting elm trees. Sadly, most of them have been lost to Dutch elm disease. He really looks at this as an incentive to bring people to your town, something that brings atmosphere and makes life healthier. And so they do the same thing with this particular cemetery where they lay it out in a grid system. It's slightly different because of the plot of land they have. Instead of it being pure squares, they are actually parallelograms. It's interesting because Frank Lloyd Wright, if you are an architecture fan, he also really liked parallelograms and he used them a lot in his architecture, which I think is interesting. I think it's more about maximizing space and being able to fit more into a smaller area than a strict grid system. And what they did was they planned it out in a revolutionary way. They were going to sell plots. So the idea was, is that you would be a stockholder in a corporation and you bought a piece of land and that piece of land gave you a vote. And so by always having stockholders and by having it in families that would own it over multiple generations, you could make all of the important decisions about the upkeep and maintenance of the cemetery that needed to be made because it wasn't being left up to chance. So they incorporate in 1796. They are recognized by the state of Connecticut. And then the first burial occurs in the fall of the next year. The first thing they do to get a little bit of capital starting up is they sell the first couple of plots for different reasons. Some they sell to local churches. So both the Unitarians and the Methodists buy plots that they can sell to their parishioners. Yale University buys a plot, which they still use for burial of presidents and things like that. There were also some set aside for strangers and specifically for Negroes because it was a segregated cemetery at the time. So if you enter the cemetery today off Grove Street, there is some a very impressive gate, which is not original to the cemetery. The gate was built by Henry Austin. It's a massive Egyptian revival gate, quite beautiful. That was built in the 1840s, 1845. But that first row of plots along the edge, it's very easy to see Yale. Yale is inside just to the right of the entrance of the gate. But those are all at the front. And then the back was sold for family lots. And the whole idea was that there would be a a family monument that could be used over multiple generations. So there's a original grid of four streets by three with these parallelogram shaped lots setting out 15 blocks This will eventually be doubled. They almost double. It's about 12 acres today, so it does grow eventually. The way that they set this up, quote, any person or body politic, their heirs, successors, or signers who shall be the proprietor or owner of a lot, which now is or hereafter shall be located or laid out in said burial ground, shall be a legal member of said corporation and entitled to one vote for every lot that he or she may possess. 
he or they, I should say, not she, he or they may possess. So that gives power to either the organization, so something like Yale or a church, or an individual lot owner. So that is actually from the Acts of Incorporation. As part of this, he also beautifies it. So part of this is saying, we need somebody to upkeep the roads. We need somebody to maintain the fence. We need somebody to plant trees. They plant poplars. They plant willows. As I said, there are a lot of elms, which sadly have been lost to Dutch elm disease. And the new burial ground was quite a departure. So much so that it quickly gains popularity. And now it's also hilarious because we say it's outside the city. I have done the walk from the, the grocery burial ground to the New Haven Green. It's about a five minute walk. It's pretty hilarious because that, that's how small these settlements were, even as they were quickly growing. But it was at that time outside of town and pretty remote. So many seeing how beautiful this was actually opted to have their loved ones removed from the green and the headstones now are almost all at Grove Street. Many of them lined up along the walls alphabetically because they didn't know exactly where people ended up. Most of the bodies are still on the green, but they moved the headstones. Some of the headstones are still there. They're actually in the basement of one of the churches. If you are interested, you can see. And so to see Grove Street today, you can, it's obviously changed a lot. There are a lot of improvements that were made through the 19th century, including both the gate and the fence around it as well as the chapel, which is right inside the gate. That was built in 1872. It's today used as the superintendent's office. So there's a lot of improvements. It does change and is updated. Burials still occur there. You can see some contemporary markers. It, it, it's a wonderful cemetery in many respects. But the biggest thing was, is it changed a lot about the way that people thought about burial grounds. They didn't just have to be a place of necessity. They didn't just have to be something that was super utilitarian. And yes, they could also be something that was run for profit. And this is going to really change as attitudes shift from that really core Puritan tradition. Because this, this to me is the time. At the turn of the 19th century is really when you start to have the sharp decline of Puritanism and you enter into the Age of Enlightenment, and people start to get really new ideas. All of that starts here. So I really love the descriptions of this. Quote, European and American visitors to New Haven were impressed with the new burial ground. Timothy Dwight accompanied many Americans and Europeans into the cemetery. Because, quote, not one of them had ever seen or heard of anything similar. In 1821, Englishman William Tudor praised the New Haven burial ground and suggested that it should be a model for reform in English cemeteries. He was struck by the landscaped ideas that the New Haven, that the New Haven burial ground symbolized, saying, quote, The yew, the willow, and other funereal trees would form suitable ornaments within our graveyards. Such a cemetery would be an interesting spot to visit, and when dispirited by unkindness, misfortune, or that listless satiety, which makes life insipid, a walk among the graves of our friends might soothe the mind into composure. And I think that's a really good quote to segue. Because what's going to happen is what was started at the Grove Street Burial Ground is going to, along with several other changes that occur in the early 19th century, usher in an age of 
new religious practices. It's going to usher in new ideologies, new attitudes about death. And as a result, it's going to usher us into the next era of American cemetery design, the rural cemetery movement, which is what I will be covering on next week's episode. So hopefully that gives you some good groundwork. The Grove Street Burial Ground is still there if you are interested in visiting. It is definitely worth a visit. It's quite lovely. It's right in the heart of Yale University. It's surrounded by lots of lovely buildings. As I said, you can also take a quick walk over to the green. You can st- still see some of the original burials that are now in the basement of the church because the land has risen over the years. Lots of interesting things to see there. It maybe isn't the stereotypical New England cemetery that we tend to think about, but it really is quite significant, and it's one that you may not have heard of when we think about the really big-name cemeteries in the United States. And you can't really talk about anything that comes after that because it's really, it's the linchpin. It's the transition from the Puritan, strictly functional burial ground, and it's the bridge that takes you next into the 19th century and the true golden age of American cemeteries. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or review, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It does help make me much more searchable. Please follow along, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com. But for now, have a great weekend. And I'm Liz Clappin. This is Tomb of the View.